Hello everybody. It is the end of my work week, so that means it's time for you to join me on the Homeward Path. This is the show that I record in my vehicle on the way home from work at the end of the work week. And my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work a full-time job, and listen, magic's tough. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money, and if you're like me and don't have a lot of either one of those things because other responsibilities come first, then you should probably stay tuned because I'm here to try to show you how I am seeking improvement at Magic under difficult time and financial constraints. But before we get started, I need to remind you that I'm a part of the Constructed Criticism Network of Shows. If you haven't checked out the other content on the network, it is fantastic, and you are doing yourself a disservice by not doing so. Uh, We bid a hopefully temporary farewell to the Arena Mythic cast, but Spencer returns, makes a glorious return to the flagship Constructed Criticism show. Uh, We've got Common Knowledge with Brad and Christian, and we've got... Sam Black, one of the icons, one of the legends of Magic the Gathering, with his insights unlimited. So we've got something for everybody. Out of the group, I'm probably the most casual, and I'm kind of trying to lay into that, embrace that, lean into it a little bit more. But check out the network, and don't forget to check out our sponsors, which I'll read off at the beginning of each segment. How's it going, everybody? I hope your week off has been as good as mine has. We're back. We're, I'm not going to say better than ever, but at least as good as ever on this trip down the path. We're going to kick things off with our first segment every episode, Budget Spotlight. Budget Spotlight is brought to you by our sponsor at PureMTGO.com. PureMTGO is one of the largest collections of magic content on the web. They've got something for everybody. So if you go on their website and you're looking for content, you can't find something for you, you have got the problem. And they're sponsored MTGO Traders, who are by far my favorite people to get cards from on Magic Online. Not the least of it because I get to keep the cards, but more than that, they have reasonable prices, excellent service, and you should definitely check them out. So moving in, the segment Budget Spotlight is about an uncommon, a rare, and a mythic, along with a card that's slanted towards commander play, all of whom I feel are underrated in some form or fashion, either in terms of how much they get played or how much they cost. Sometimes both. Our uncommon this week is a little bit of a special one, because we're setting the stage for the new standard format. And that uncommon is Infernal Grasp. Infernal Grasp costs one and a black for an instant. Destroy target creature, you lose two life. It is currently priced at $2 on CoolStuffInc.com and .01 tickets on MTGO Traders. So this clearly sets the creature market in standard, right? Like, if it costs more than two mana, it needs to generate immediate value, or you probably shouldn't play it. It either needs to represent such a high upside if you get to untap with it that it's worth it, or you better be generating value 
right now. Because if you're not, this isn't doing enough for you. And, you know, the thought crossed my mind, it's very similar in style and, like, how it's designed to Thoughtseize. Which is to say, it trades a black mana from the cost of another card for two life. In this case, that card is Murder. In Thoughtseize's case, it was Distress from Kamigawa that nobody wants to talk about. Uh, distress being double black, target opponent, or, you know, look at target opponent's hand, choose an online card, they discard that card. And Thoughtseize was Distress, minus a black mana in the cost, but plus two life on the back end. Infernal Grasp is Murder, minus a black mana in the cost, but plus a two life loss on the back end. So, just a really neat thing about design for it. And it's just a welcome addition to the game. You know, two mana, destroy target creature. The two life is trivial until it's not. So, all the way around, I think it's just a welcome addition to the game. You can do a lot worse for a $2 uncommon. And especially on Magic Online, it is a literal penny. Just get it. It's good. Moving on to our rare, we have one that is, shall we say, unorthodox. Uh, as of the time of writing the notes, it was actually banned on Magic Online because it was bugged and it wasn't working correctly. It was causing issues where you were locking your opponent out of your draw step, and that's reflected in the price tag of it as to why so many players bought it up when it first dropped. But that card is Siphon Insight. Siphon Insight is a blue and a black instant. Look at the top two cards of target opponent's library. Exile one of them and put the other on the bottom of their library. You can play the exiled card and you can spend mana as though it were any type to cast it. Now, notably, it doesn't say you can cast the card. It says you can play the card, which means you can hit lands. The price tag on this right now, as of recording, is $2 a copy on CoolStuffInc.com. Seriously, just get them. That's ridiculous. And 4.16 tickets on MTGO Traders. Now, again, part of that price tag may be due to scarcity and demand because the set just dropped on Magic Online and there was the, the bug that was discovered. So players were, like, locking people out in events by just by using it in order to like get their opponents to miss draw steps and lose that way so you know scummy yes so wait for the price on the magic online side to drop before you get in on this but from a design perspective this thing is a sleight of hand but you actually use it to steal stuff from your opponent really important to, make, to, to mention that. Like, we've used sleight of hand before, the difference being, of course, sleight of hand is sorcery and siphon inside is an instant. But it's a cantrip that you draw the card from your opponent's deck. And not for nothing, there's a, there's a resource availability to it that is kind of unique, and that is the ability to hit your opponent's lands. It's got a twofold effect on the game. When you hit your opponent's lands off the top of their library, you're doing two things. You are, one, not letting them draw the gas that was already there because it goes to the bottom. 
but two, you're also denying them land drops while you continue to hit yours. And in control decks, that's especially valuable, like Siphon Insight into a land is especially valuable because control decks are more interested in playing expensive cards as the game goes on. So all the way around, like, it's just a really good deal. Oh, and did I mention it has flashback for one of blue and a black? So it's really good. Like, really, really good. It has synergy with your own graveyard loading effects. You know, when you really need to find a land, you can bin it with Consider in order to draw a different card or put it on the bottom with Behold the Multiverse or, you know, I guess you probably wouldn't. You probably would just rather have the card. But it's really good, and especially the paper price tag is not remotely outrageous. Get them. They're good. Next up on the docket, our mythic for the week is Poppet Stitcher. And yes, we are doing mostly, actually all, Innistrad Midnight Iron cards. Because I wanted to make a point of it. Uh, Poppet Stitcher is two and a blue, buys you a two, three creature, and every time you cast an instant sorcery, you get a two, two zombie with decay. At the beginning of your upkeep, if you control three or more tokens, you can transform it. While it's transformed, it's actually an artifact, Poppet Factory, that says creature tokens you control lose all abilities and become three, three. And then at the beginning of your upkeep, if at the beginning of your upkeep, you may transform Poppet Factory. So if you run out of tokens, you can flip it back over to get some more. So this is the latest attempt at sort of a young Pyromancer clone. But this one's a little bit more durable. Being a 2-3 instead of a 2-1. You're paying one extra mana for two more points of toughness and the tokens to not be quite as permanent. But it does close the game out faster than a young Pyromancer does. Notably, especially if you get it to flip, like you untap with it, you make enough tokens to justify it, and then you get to flip it, your tokens can maybe kill them. It's very possible. And more notable, your later copies can pay off the other ones that you've had and lost, or they can pay off any other Young Pyromancer styled card, like Young Pyromancer itself, like Docent of Perfection, like uh, Sedgemore Witch, anything along those lines that gives you tokens. Flipping Poppet Factory benefits all of them. So you can best believe I'm going to be looking to pick up a copy for Nymizet and Commander. And it's also a card I've got on my radar for Standard. It's just really good. And the price tag on this one, admittedly, again, is a little high. But, you know, my budget range for the Rare and Mythic slot is up to $10. Ideally, for the Rare, I want it to cut off before 5 and then for the Mythic, I'd like it to be around the same number. But in this case, Poppet Stitcher's paper price is $8 a copy. And its Magic Online price as of recording is $5.19 in tickets. 
And last but not least, our commander-oriented card. Let's not kid ourselves. This thing is, is good everywhere. And that card is Storm the Festival. Storm the Festival is three green, green, green. I believe it's a sorcery. I can't remember. If it's an instant, it's even more cracked in half. But, like, I think it's a sorcery. You look at your top five cards. You can put two permanents with mana value two or less. Or not two or less. Or that would be a worse collected company, not a better one. You look at your top five cards, you can pick two permanent cards with mana value five or less from among them. Put them onto the battlefield. Uh, put the rest on the bottom in a random order. It also has flashback for seven green, green, green. So, we just got done doing this, right? We just got done doing this. We just rotated Genesis Ultimatum. We just rotated Emergent Ultimatum. We just banned Fires of Invention not that long ago. Right? Because this thing represents upwards of 10 mana of value. 10 mana of value. And while this is technically not quite as powerful as either of the ultimatums, Emergent or uh, Genesis, because obviously Genesis you could get five permanents out of, and Emergent you could just always get the ones you wanted. The upside to this one is you get flashback. So you get to try the first time, and if it doesn't work out, you're not dead. You can do it again. Or if you do hit the first time and somehow don't win the game, you can do it again. I can think of a few times you'd be able to just floop into an infinite combo with this. Fun fact for the players interested in doing it in Modern. This is six mana that puts Kiki Jiki and Pestermite into play. I'm just saying. Or Kiki Jiki and Restoration Angel. Or... Like, every single pseudo-Splinter Twin that's left in Modern, you can do for six mana out of your top five cards. To say nothing of obviously being able to do it in Commander in conjunction with cards like Worldly Tutor. Or, you know, Harbinger Effects, or whatever. Whatever way you have of loading a creature on top of your library. You know, use Congregation at Dawn to stack the top of your library and then fire this thing off because you know what you're going to hit. That seems really strong. So, of course, this card's got to be expensive, right? Like, this thing's stupid. No, it's, uh, it's $1.00 on Cool Stuff Inc. and about half a ticket on MTGO Traders. Because of course it is. So not only is it really powerful, but it's also really available. So keep this card in mind, please. So that's going to wrap up Budget Spotlight. Let's transition over to our next segment, Brew of the Week. Brew of the Week is brought to you by our affiliate program with Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games... If you are an arena player like me, is one of the easiest ways to sort of catch up when you get behind in your free-to-play grind. 
you can buy pre-release coats from them for like $7 and just get a nice little shot in the arm. You can get cosmetics, you can get promo packs, you can get F&M promos. They've just, they've got all the, they've got all the stuff. Anything that you can get on Arena for playing Paper Magic, you have access to without having to buy the paper products. So, head over there, use the affiliate link down in the description, or uh, if you're not watching this on YouTube or listening to it on ConstructedCriticism.com, the affiliate link is in my pinned posts in the Homeward Pathfinders Facebook group. Now, this week's Brew of the Week is not really a brew so much as it is just kind of a defining force of the upcoming standard format. I call it Cadillac Turbo. And can we just talk about what a great nickname that is for Essica's Chariot? The Cadillac. It's the Cadillac. I love it. But at a core concept level, you're a collection of the most powerful cards in standard. You're playing Essica's Chariot, Renin 7, Allrun's Epiphany, Goldspan Dragon. You're a teamer deck. But you're just you're just a collection of all the best cards. You supplement those really powerful top-end cards with some combination of ramp effects, card selection, and interaction to make sure you get to what you want to do. You're operating as a powerhouse mid-range plan. You are banking really heavily on just how awesome your magic cards are in every matchup. From a customization standpoint, your top-end cards are the draw to this deck. So, the variation lies in how you get there. Yes, technically there are other variations on the theme, but the Teamer version is going to be the best one right now. A more proactive list is going to max out. You're going to play additional threats. You're going to try to find ways to keep your opponent's removal off of your Goldspan Dragons or off of your Chariots or off of your Renin Sevens. But any one of those that goes unopposed is going to go the distance, and that's kind of the whole point, right? Like, if one, of, if you get to untap with one of those cards, you should probably be winning the game. So being able to play all of them is really strong. A more reactive list on, on balance is going to be playing more reactive cards. Duh. But it, you're going to be playing more interaction. You're going to be playing more removal. You're going to be looking at stuff like permission. Uh, you're going to be interested in slowing the game down, keeping the board state relatively tame through cards like Crush the Weak, Frostbite, or uh, Play with Fire, or... Oh, I know there's another one, and I'm drawing a blank. Fading Hope to bounce expensive creatures. You know, you just... You lean really heavily on mana-efficient mana answers in order to get you to a position where you can just play one of your big stupid cards that dominates the board. Strengths and weaknesses? Well, 
you get to overwhelm opponents who can't keep up the pace. As every single one of your top end cards demands an immediate answer. Like, it feels like all of those cards have that hidden line of text from Niv-Mizzet Perun that says if I get to untap my lands while I control this permanent, I'll win the game. Now, if I get to untap while I control Goldspan Dragon, it's going to be really hard to lose. If I get to untap while I control Ren and Seven, it's going to be really hard to lose. If I get to untap while I control Chariot, it's going to be really hard to lose. If I get to untap while controlling two or more of those, I, I should win now. Like, we talk all the time about, you know, or we used to talk all the time about Glorybringer being the best threat in standard. Come to find out, the glory it was bringing belonged to Goldspan Dragon, okay? That thing is a powerhouse. Like, you cast Goldspan Dragon, your opponent deals with it, and then you just cast Epiphany and find another one. Whether you foretold the Epiphany or not. <laughs> to say nothing of the weird synergy of getting to play it with Fading Hope, and your opponent goes to remove it, and you just pick it up, get another treasure out of the deal, so you can do some nonsense in the next turn. So... A weakness of it is mana inefficiency. You are really reliant on your powerful top-end cards. You don't have a lot of ways to pressure the opponent low on the mana curve. By necessity, you're playing ramp effects, you're playing card selection, you're playing interaction. So you don't have a lot of things your opponent's super scared of early in the game. And that, in turn, makes it to where your opponent can kind of sit back and pick off your power cards. Now, your hope is that your opponent is not disciplined enough to do that. Or is interested in furthering a game plan of their own. But if their game plan is just to not die. And try to set up a way to win the game later. Good luck. You're gonna have a real tough time resolving all these four and five mana, five, four, five, six, and seven mana spells. From an outlook, you know, hey, you know, what what do I have as an outlook on this deck? I think the more I play it, the more I'm inclined to just treat it like mythic. I want to just max out on ways to cast my spells reliably and sometimes early. Like, turn three Chariot into turn four Goldspan into turn five Epiphany seems really, really strong. Like, really, 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 really strong. The one thing I would say about building and playing the deck, though, I've mainly been playing best of one, admittedly. But when it comes time to work on sideboarding, I would definitely recommend having a plan for when your opponent wants to make the fight about mana efficiency. Whether that means boarding into some cheaper threats, or that means boarding into counter magic for their counter magic, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. But that's the concern. So that's going to wrap up Brew of the Week. And let's move on to our main topic. Main topic this week, 
I said, let the midnight hunt begin. And I said that because, well, you know, we just started in a stride midnight hunt standard and we can all be really excited about it. Standard is awesome again. Like it's, it's been kind of on a downward trend since, uh, since Eldraine dropped, you know, power level of a set that good and Embercleave just kind of given everybody the business for two years regardless of all the other cards they've had to ban like if you want to know how powerful a magic card Embercleave is it was still the dominant aggro threat as all these other cards got banned or nerfed over the last two years that's how good Embercleave is we have no more Eldraine no more companions, so no more Yorians, no more Lurises. And just less haymakers in the format in general, which is, I guess, fairly normal transitioning from eight set standard to five. But it just feels, it, it's hidden different this time around. So what have we got people playing right now? We've got some pretty clear and established pillars for the four major archetypes, the fifth major archetype being combo, uh, but we've got clear pillars for aggro, tempo, mid-range, and control. Even if they're, you know, we don't have fully fleshed out lists on everything yet, because it's only been a couple weeks and there haven't been a lot of major events. We've got pillars. We've also got a lot of tier two decks that are worth taking a look at. So what are these pillars? Let's start with the aggro decks. Mono green aggro is the default. You've got the best creatures, werewolf pack leader, old growth troll. You get to play chariot, a layer of the hydra to close things out if your opponent gets frisky and messes your board up. Like, you just get to play these big, really efficient creatures, and proccing Werewolf Pack Leader just feels really strong. Like, the first time that thing just draws you a card, and then you look at that card and you're like, oh, this is another big creature. This is fun. And thanks to cards like Blizzard Brawl, you've got ways to remove opposing threats that maybe you wouldn't have in the past. Like mono green is actually pretty pretty legitimate. I, I I sleep I don't don't you dare sleep on it because it will punish you the moment you do. Gruel is another one that's on its way up. It kind of resembles the mono green deck. You sort of take the greatest hits from mono green, the most powerful cards available in mono green. Those being werewolf pack leader, chariot, blizzard brawl and Lair of the Hydra, and you mix them with the Werewolves theme. You mix them with just some good red cards. Whatever the case may be, you've got access to a really good-looking rule shell to just kind of bash your opponent's face in with. And then not for nothing, but white-based aggro decks are still out there, whether it's the life game deck with Righteous Valkyries and all that, or sort of a more straightforward 
play a two a one mana two power creature, play a two mana Luminarch Aspirant, play you know Clarion Spirit plus a one drop on turn three and get going that way. It's underexplored, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But it's worth mentioning because it's it's doable, it's possible, and I've run into it. So what are your mid-range pillars? Well, we just talked about one in Brew of the Week. But at their core, most of your mid-range decks that people are playing right now are either base green, base red-blue, or base black. The base green mid-range decks want to play Chariot and Red and Seven. That's your combo to dominate the board with. For those of you who don't know, Ren and Seven can make a token whose power and toughness are equal to the number of lands you control. That token can then crew chariot, which can then attack and make another token, threatening lethal damage the next turn. You put your opponent on a very, very, very quick clock. Especially if you've got an, ex an excess of lands in your hand, and you can use Ren to dump them on the next turn. The blue-red, I mean, you're playing Goldspan Dragon and Allrin's Epiphany. And then you have access to cards like Delver of Secrets or Magmatic Channeler. You have access to Expressive Iteration, and you've got access to Ascendant Spirit. So there's a lot to a lot to unpack and a lot to work with in the mid-range sense with blue-red. And then you've got the black mid-range decks that are just piles and piles and piles of value spells. And there is nothing inherently wrong with that. Whether we're talking about cards like Shambling Ghast, Linking Arms with Deadly Dispute, Skullport Merchant, uh, Village Rights, the treasure cards in general, all the way up to sweepers like Shadow's Verdict and Blood in the Snow, Crippling Fear, like there's just a lot in black to get you interested. And there are mono-black control lists going around everywhere because they supposedly poo-poo on the, the chariot decks. But you just, you've got access to a lot of spot removal, a lot of uh, different engines you can mix and match. And it just, you know, it feels an awful lot like every other black mid-range deck I've ever played. And that's a good thing. Familiar is fine. From the tempo standpoint, you've got blue-red and blue-black Delver so far. I'd be shocked if we didn't shortly end up getting a blue-white version of the deck. If only for nostalgia's sake, but in general, like I think it would be fine. Faithful Absence is a really good magic card. And there's uh, Faithful Mending in white that is really helpful for digging through your deck. It's not, it's not quite as good as Expressive Iteration. It doesn't hamstring the opponent as much as Siphon Insight, but it is a very powerful card selection tool and comes with a life gain little bump to justify taking the turn off to cast it early. So I could understand being interested in Blue-White Delver. And then there's also the blue-red version of the the Dragon's deck that instead of maxing out on Dragon and Goldspan Dragon and Emrith and Inferno of Star Mounts and Epiphany and being this sort of like big mid-range almost Jun deck, you you trim your curve a lot and you only play Smoldering Egg and Goldspan 
and just a smattering of cheap instants and sorceries. And that allows you to flip Smoldering Egg very early in the game and take over the game that way. And I've seen lists that do that with Delver, and I've seen lists that do that with uh, Goldspan Dragon. Whatever floats your boat. And the control stand, uh, from the control standpoint, you've got access to blue-white, which, of course, we do. We've got a board wipe in Doomscar. We've got a really powerful spot removal spell in Fateful Absence. And we've got Planeswalkers in the form of Teferi, uh, Mordekainen, Grandmaster of Flowers, and... We've got Faithful Mending to make sure we find the right cards. Linking arms with Consider and... Uh, oh, what is that card's name? I'm drawing a blank. But, you know, regardless, we've got access to a lot of stuff in blue-white that can slow the game down, catch us up on the board, and then start to gradually grind our opponent into the dust. Same way we always have. Same goes for blue-black. The standard 22 version just kind of looks the same. You get better cards in a lot of the role-playing slots. Like, you don't have to play Power Word Kill now. You can play Infernal Grasp. You don't have to play... Um, huh, excuse me. There's several cards. you like. There's a handful of cards you don't have to play anymore, but you still can. You get to pick up cards like Siphon Insight. You get to pick up cards like... Uh, what is that card's name? I'm drawing a blank. I am drawing a blank again. This is ridiculous. But regardless, like the, the overarching theme of being a blue deck with black mana that dominates the board, just keeps the board clear, jams a Planeswalker or a big dumb creature down and wins the game that way. Whether it's your big dumb creature or it's the werewolf pack leader you stole from your opponent with Siphon Insight and you just protect the heck out of it. Regardless of what the style, you know, regardless of how you get there, it's the same thing. And then, of course, we have the meme deck of the format, the one that people are going to play just to try to cheese out some best-of-one wins, and that is the Tasha's Mel deck that I talked about in last episode. Or, no, it was the week before. Episode before. Now, do I think this deck is good? Sort of. I think it's good against a low-curve deck that doesn't have a lot of high high mana value targets for you to hit, so that, you know, it becomes feasible to just clean up the board a couple of times, don't die, don't die, and then you just blow them out out of nowhere. It's, it's functionally a three-card combo. Don't try to trade it as a two-card. Tasha's plus one copy spell will not get you there reliably. But Tasha's plus two copy spells is 60 mana worth of cards. And that can either get you all the way there or get you far enough that your opponent will struggle to kill you before they run out of cards. So, 
I don't condone it necessarily. Have I played it? Yes, because I got tired of losing to it and I wanted to see what it was about. But I don't think the deck is good. I do think it's going to be something that's going to frustrate people, though. So, overall impressions of the format as a whole, it feels very much like the standard format is a fundamental turn 5 format. And what that means for the uninitiated is that means your game plan needs to be in effect by turn 5. Whether that means your opponent's dead by turn 5 because you're playing aggro, or that means you're starting to play your bigger threats and starting to seize domination of the board in your mid-range decks, or it means you have stopped your opponent, or you've caught up to your opponent on the board and are going to start seeking your two-for-ones through the mid-game in control. This means aggro is a turn slower than last year, at least in terms of consistency. Look, we all got tired of playing against Embercleave decks. We all got tired of just casually dying on turn four through removal spells. But what this means is it means more decks are viable. You don't have to have a deck that can keep pace with haste creatures at every point in the curve leading to an Embercleave. Like, that's not a necessity anymore. So this means decks like Delver, decks like the Tokens decks, they're viable where they maybe weren't before. Another interesting observation is that it feels very much like mana efficiency is a way to win games. The one to two drops of your average proactive decks are relatively low impact. Like it is really hard for them to get far enough ahead of you with their just their one and two drops. To really give you the business. So with that in mind. As a more reactive deck. It becomes more. Reasonable. To focus on leveraging your permission. Your counter spells. Your removal. On the threats that you are trading with. At a mana advantage. So that you can get multiple spells in. Like, it becomes a whole lot more reasonable to just leave up four mana and wait for them to cast a dragon into your stroke than it does to sweep the board of a bunch of 1-1s because it's unlikely they're going to cast anything that's going to make those lethal that you can't do something about. So, as is usually the case with a standard format that just got a lot smaller there's less synergy in the format, which in turn means you get punished a whole lot less for focusing on the cards that matter. To that end, the card Disdainful Stroke specifically is astonishingly well positioned. You look at all of the most powerful cards that I've mentioned. Essica's Chariot, Renin Seven, Goldspan Dragon, Allrin's Epiphany, um... Moonvale Regent in the in the Gruul decks or the Delver decks. Memory Deluge in control. The Sweepers. Behold the Multiverse. Uh, Storm the Citadel. All of these cards get countered by Disdainful Stroke. So I personally am going to be looking to find room to fit main deck copies of Stroke into my decks that are playing blue.
I don't know why more people aren't. So what's some unexplored territory for the standard format? Because it always feels like the format homogenizes really quickly now thanks to Arena. Like people just figure out what's good and they only play that. But there's some, there's some stuff that's got some legs. The white Magecraft deck feels really strong. Like, killed my life gain opponent on turn four. Strong. It creates a situation, especially if you're playing one with more instants the way that I am right now, where you can make your opponent so wrong based on how they block. You know, you attack, your opponent thinks they're going to get a gimme out of your, your land and light scribe. They put a 4-4 in front of it. And then you just curve, consider into show of confidence, pump it by plus 4 or plus 3, put one of the show of confidence counters on it, and then the clever Lumamancer does the rest of the work. Like, it just, it's so easy to cheese some wins out of people who just make bad decisions, just make wrong decisions in the moment based on incomplete information. Doesn't mean they're bad players, it just means they didn't know what I was doing. So it's a deck that feels very viable, it feels similar to the prowess decks. And in particular, I'm playing it currently with a slant toward the secondary engine being the second spell payoffs from Kaldheim and... Uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Notably, Monk of the Open Hand, Clarion Spirit, and Code Spell Cleric. All of which I think are honestly a lot better magic cards than I initially thought they were. Like, you can get really strong draws where you just do the second spell thing. You play Monk on turn one, you play second Monk into Code Spell Cleric on turn two, and your opponent's staring at six power on the board. And then you go Light Scribe, Guiding Voice, add a lesson, and attack. And suddenly your opponent's really questioning why there isn't a 4-mana Wrath in the format. Like, there's a lot to unpack there to work on. The Black Tokens decks also seem rather underrated because we're not seeing a lot of Frostbite being played right now. Which in turn makes Sedgemore Witch better. And then I could also see a variation on the Cadillac Turbo deck that wants to play Sultai in order to play uh, Binding of the Old Gods. Essentially serving to act as a mirror breaker where you break their things and then you play your own. It's sort of the old uh, Umazawa's GTA fight game plan. So... All the way around, the standard format looks really engaging, really exciting. I'm looking forward to working on it more, and that's something I haven't said about standard in a long time. But that's all I've got for this episode, everybody. If you've got questions, you've got comments, concerns, leave them down below, and don't forget to click the subscribe button if you're on YouTube, and hit that like button, too. Makes me feel better. Um... Uh, if you've got further questions, comments, concerns, you can send them to me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. You can send them to me in our Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. If you're a patron of the show, you get access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord at $1 a month. 
where we're discussing show topics. I'm sharing deck lists. I will be doing a massive dump of those tonight once I have time to do, once I have time to get it done. So that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Again, I hope you've enjoyed it and no dad jokes. Nobody submitted any, a little disappointed, tried to work in a few as we went, but you know, no dice, no gambling. And I will catch you next episode. So remember, everybody's going through stuff right now. So whatever you do with other people, please lead with kindness. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So laugh hard, play standard, be kind. We'll catch you next week.